Welcome all to the World Conference of the Noahide Nations. My name is Tovia Singer. This presentation was not supposed to be pre-recorded. Ray Patterson and I have been talking about this conference that brought Gentiles, righteous Gentiles from around the world in the United States and Southern Florida for about a year now. And this presentation, I was supposed to be looking at you and making uh, a case for the nations of the world to cleave unto the children of Israel in this great historic time. Only a couple of months ago, when I was offered an opportunity to live in the Holy Land, but not just anywhere in the land of Israel, but in Jerusalem. In fact, not just Jerusalem, but in the old city of Jerusalem, living across from the Temple Mount. It was just one o'clock in the morning when the offer came to me where I can live just about a thousand feet from the western wall. I was on a plane the following evening at 10.50 p.m. The result of that, that I made Aliyah, living here in, in the land of my forefathers, made it impossible for me to leave the land of Israel and be in Florida and make this presentation to you live. This has been the culmination of many years. My moving to the land of Israel has been the result of a great deal of affection, all the love in my heart for this land that I cared for so deeply, was so close to my heart, yet I hadn't lived here. But I realized that time was running short, that we're living in what is likely to be prophetic times. It appears to me, although we're warned by the prophets of Israel, not to make calculations, not to, the Talmud tells us, not to try to estimate the, the time of the end. It is very difficult to live in a time such as this, as we observe Iran rising up against the children of Israel, the Jewish people restored to the Holy Land, it's hard to imagine that we're not living in prophetic times. It's, it's difficult. You would need an extraordinary imagination to concoct a narrative of how we're not living in the times that were spoken of thousands of years ago by great men of God like Zechariah and Ezekiel. The result of the extraordinary vibrations in the world, I made a choice in my life that has changed me in every way. And now, as I speak to you, I'm looking out my window and I see the Temple Mount. In fact, if I raise my eyes a little further, I could see the Mount of Olives. Please, God, Zechariah 14 will unfold and the Messianic Age will arrive and the Messiah himself will come to transform this world from a place of bitter darkness to a place of eternal light will come and the nations of the world and the kings will go by the light of God. You know, this transformation, this change that unfortunately prevented me from making a live presentation at the World Conference of Noahide Nations has affected the world. You're listening to this presentation and you, someone who grew up very likely in the Christian world where cleaving to the Jewish people might not have been on your program, well, all that's changed. We're living in a time now when the God of Israel has begun to fulfill extraordinary promises. Over the last century, we've witnessed the people of Israel rising from the ashes of Auschwitz, returning to the land of Israel. But it was in a clock, in God's time. Back in 1948, in the War of Independence here in the land of Israel, uh, the Jewish people fought mightily against many Arab armies who sought to destroy the nation of Israel to prevent the children of Israel from living in the land of Israel. And God's hand was upon his nation and through great miracles, the people of Israel were able to establish a state here in 1948. At that time, during the War of Independence, the newly formed IDF, 
under the command of Ben-Gurion, they sought to liberate this holy city of Jerusalem. There were many Jews who were caught here in this crossfire, right here in the old city of Jerusalem. And although we were able to liberate parts of the Negev and the uh, Galilee, which the Jews were not assigned to by the partition plan in 1947, great victories were accomplished, and it would have been impossible not to see the hand of God back in 1948. Yet, going back to that remarkable time, Ben-Gurion wanted to liberate the old city of Jerusalem, but he couldn't. He was unable to. Forces were unleashed by the newly formed Israeli Defense Forces that sought to break through the wall of the old city to feed the starving fighters here, to bring them ammunition, but every effort failed, and many young men and women died seeking to liberate Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, in the War of Independence. For 19 years, no Jew was permitted to walk where I am now living. For 19 years, from 1948 to 1967, not a single Jew was permitted to pass Mandelbaum Gate. In essence, God allowed the children of Israel to have sovereignty over much of the land of Israel, yet the heartland of the Holy Land, Judea, Samaria, the eastern part of Jerusalem was not in our hands. Yet it was just 40 years ago that a great miracle unfolded. The nations of the world in the Middle East, especially Egypt and Syria and other Arab armies, had threatened the destruction of the Jewish state. The president of Egypt, Abdul Nasser, had promised to throw the Jews into the sea. The Almighty inspired the leaders and and generals of the state of Israel to destroy and demolish the air force and armies of, of people who appeared on the surface to be far mightier than us. They had greater horses than we did and larger and more mightier chariots than the little state of Israel, which was very, very tiny. But we had a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, that be not afraid of them, even though their chariots and their horses and their armaments appear greater than yours, the Lord your God is with you. Ironically, the leaders of the military in the 67 war and the Six-Day War were not particularly religious Jews, especially people like Moshe Dayan. They pleaded, this is so strange, they pleaded with King Hussein, the then king of Jordan, look, don't battle with us. This is a war that we have with Egypt and Syria. Stay out of this conflict, and we will not engage with you. Now, imagine if King Hussein had listened to the advice, the suggestion of this uh, recommendation of Israeli leaders who were not particularly religious, whether it was the Prime Minister Levi Eshkol or, or Moshe Dayan and Rabin and others, if King Hussein would have stayed out of that conflict 40 years ago, I would not be able to be here in Jerusalem along with thousands of other Jews who can live and pray here. And But King Hussein... Well, his heart was hardened, and he launched an attack against the western part of Jerusalem. There weren't many casualties. There were many injuries and some damage to the infrastructure of the western part of the city, and it left the uh, Israeli leadership with no choice but to attack the Jordanian army, and it was essentially a hot knife going through warm butter, and God had wrought forth a great miracle. So in the 67 war, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, including Hebron, the second holiest place on earth, and Samaria with holy places like Bethel, the Benjamin region, were all liberated in the hands of the Jewish people. God had fulfilled a great promise they had made so many thousands of years earlier. Ironically, when the Jews wanted Jerusalem, the time wasn't yet set. God's clock wasn't yet ready, and Ben-Gurion and his army weren't able to penetrate this old city. 
But when the Jews were silly enough not to want Jerusalem and not to want a conflict with, with a Jordanian occupation force, God forced the hand of Pharaoh, hardened his heart, and as a result, the Jewish people were here. And as a result, I'm here, and I'm able to speak to you from this holy place. I'm able to speak to you here at the World Conference of the Noahide Nations. Now, something else extraordinary has happened in over the past few decades. Vibrations have gone across the world, and folks like yourself, whether it's from North America or Europe, has started to think about the Jewish people in a way that non-Jews rarely did in history started to look at the children of Israel and ask the question, perhaps God is working with them. I know that you're listening to my voice right now. You may have grown up as maybe a Christian out in the Midwest and the heartland of the United States, and you developed this love and affection for the Jewish people. You'd, you'd be in an airport and you'd see a a Jew wearing a, a black coat and a beard, and you, you'd want to walk over to him and just shake his hand because there's something, something that was trembling in your heart, something that was crying deep inside of you that was calling you to connect to the children of Israel. I would posit to you that that, that remarkable transformation in your life is of heaven, not of earth. In the 19th century, there emerged among Christians, Protestant Christians, theologies, theologies that said something that the church fathers and reformers denied. A theology called today a premillennial dispensation that said that God had not rejected the Jewish people as his covenant nation. There are some of you listening to this that may have grown up with that theology around you, or perhaps you grew up in the Catholic or Greek Orthodox Church, and you changed and you, you embrace the Jewish people and realize that God is working with them. Perhaps you grew up as an Anglican Christian where you didn't believe in premillennial dispensationalism, but you were raised to believe that God has one covenant, and that's with the Jewish people. That's something that you discovered later on as an adult as a Christian. But as you were emerging in your life and growth, you began to realize that maybe God is working with the Jewish people alone. And maybe it is that the Jews are correct. Their way they worship, the way they connect to God. And in fact, your role as a Gentile is to cleave to the children of Israel, to the Jewish people to fulfill the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, and then ten Gentiles of different languages will cleave to the hem of a Jew and say, take us with you, because now we know that God is with you. You know, as surprising as this is for you, it, and it is for me too, because when I was a little boy growing up in Brooklyn, I, I didn't think that Gentiles had much use for us Jews. <laughs> and if I ever doubted that uh, approach, uh, there were always uh, some Catholic kids on the corner reminding me that I killed their God. So I was pretty sure growing up that Gentiles didn't have much use for the Jewish people. But uh, that was back in the 1960s and 70s. Transformation has certainly occurred. I think that, and it's hard for me to place myself and in the world that you've emerged from, but I think that you probably are staring straight at God's covenant. Some of you have been to the land of Israel, and perhaps you've walked through the Bible itself, and even though you've studied Scripture during your life, when you walk through Jerusalem, when you walk in the footsteps of our patriarchs in Hebron, when you walk down the streets where Jacob did and look at a beautiful place in the northern part of Benjamin where Jacob saw a ladder with angels going up and down in a, a dream back in the book of Genesis, you realize that God never broke his covenant with the children of Israel. You realize at some stage in your life that flowers and leaves and 
grass fade and wither, but the Word of God stands forever and ever. You know, when the Bible tells us that the nation of Israel is an eternal nation, nothing could damage that, nothing could injure that promise. Jeremiah 31 tells us quite clearly that you can look up at the sky, if the moon is there, if the sun is there, if if your nights and days are illuminated by the by the heavenly bodies, so too is the seed of Jacob. You realize that God has a covenant, a promise that's locked in heaven that can never be eradicated. And not only that, Scripture tells us in the book of Deuteronomy that not necessarily all of the Jewish people would be preserved. Obviously, many Jews have been lost over the centuries. Many of them have converted out and become atheists, joined the Communist Party, became Christians, abandoned the teachings of the Bible. And their grandchildren really are not among us today. They've been lost among the nations. Scripture tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, something unique about the covenant. It tells us, Scripture has described that the Jews are very few in number. God has preserved them because of the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Scripture tells us in verse 9 that the covenant is only placed among those Jews is only preserved among those who are members of the children of Israel who connect to God's promise. After all, God's promise is that the Jewish people are an eternal nation because they have an eternal message to bring to the world. But it's only those Jews who agree to carry on that eternal message that are able to be members of the faithful remnant of the Jewish people. And you'll see this message throughout the Bible repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. Very specifically, there are two parts to this agreement between God and the Jewish people. The Jewish people must have a personal relationship with the Almighty, and they must be faithful and obedient to his commandments. And it is those Jews who observe the mitzvot, who observe God's commandments, and those who walk with the Almighty, who love him with all of his heart, soul, and might, God would preserve them. Well, it's pretty clear that much of history is now behind us, and you can see very, I think it's quite apparent, that Jewish people have chosen many different paths. Even in the Jewish scriptures, you'll see that not only is Tanakh a record of faithful Jews, of pious Jews, but it is unfortunately there have been many Jews who've turned their back on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and some of them, well, they went into downright rebellion against the Almighty, and God has done away with them. Today, who do we have? Who are among us? Look around you as Jews. They are not the grandchildren of Jews who became Muslims 500 years ago, those who became Christians 900 years ago or 1,500 years ago. If you look in the Christian Bible, there were Jews there. Peter, who's a married man, his grandchildren aren't among us today. Uh, the children of Jews who became Christians back uh, 1,900 years ago, their descendants are not among us today. You'll meet many Jews who today, unfortunately, are not observant, but all of them are the great-grandchildren of the great-great-grandchildren of devoutly observant Jews. And if a Jew today isn't observant, it's because of a tragic decision that was made just over the last few generations. God has preserved the remnant, as Zephaniah chapter 3, 12, 13 describes, is a humble remnant that has no deceit in their mouth, that are faithful to the word, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to his Torah. You've discovered that. So as you've learned more and more about the people of Israel and the ways of Israel, not through the filters of the church, not through Luther and not through Calvin and not through Bucer and not through Augustine, but through the Jewish people, you began to discover that God has only preserved those Jews who rejected the tenets of the church, who rejected the tenets of Christianity, who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who rejected Muhammad 
as the prophet who rejected atheism and communism as the direction they would lead themselves. It's just the remnant. The remnant who are faithful, that's who God has preserved. You've recognized that the Almighty is working with the children of Israel, and you made a tough decision. I would imagine that for many of you listening to my voice right now, walking out of a church and into a synagogue wasn't an easy choice. You might have lost some family over that decision. To this day, it's quite possible that your mom won't even talk to you. Sisters have disowned you because you left the assemblies of God. You won't walk into a Baptist church, and you won't praise any other name but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't wish any suffering upon you, but if you've suffered on behalf of the God of Israel, you're all right. I wouldn't sell it on the open market. I wouldn't put your suffering on eBay. The Almighty sees every pain that you've endured on his behalf. That's uppercase H. And you've decided to cleave to the children of Israel. And you look around you now, and what do we see today? We see a world filled with some who support the Arab world, who support Yishmael. You see those who support another powerful force in this earth, and that's Edom, the fourth of the four beasts outlined in the book of Daniel. There was Babylon, there was Persia, there was Greece, and Edom, which is Rome, and ultimately would become the church. Daniel tells us, and actually it's the angel Gabriel tells us in the book of Daniel, that would be the the most horrific of all the enemies of Israel, this last bitter enemy of God. This, after all, is Edom, the fiercest of all the beasts. And it is Edom today, the fourth kingdom, which is split apart many times. In the dream that Daniel interpreted, describes the, the final kingdom as the legs made of iron and clay that would shatter apart, but ultimately be destroyed by the final and fifth kingdom. So the Jewish people have to contend with our good friends in Europe and <laughs> France and, and those who, cl- who cleave to the ideology of Rome and those who unfortunately, tragically, support Ishmael, the Arab world, the Islamic world, like the former president of the United States who referred to a, a free nation like Israel as an apartheid state. So you have these two forces in the world that rise up and seek to bear witness against the Jewish people. These are two parts of the Gentile world. The book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, describe how these two parts would be cut off and destroyed. That ultimately the enemies of Zion, those who curse Jerusalem, will be taken away. And incidentally, I don't think this stage in history, it would be a very wise thing for someone to rise up against the children of Israel. I mean, at this stage in the game, you know, it's hard to imagine that God has replaced the Jews when we're here. In the Bible, Egypt personifies the Arab world that seeks our destruction. The end of the book of Joel, chapter 4, verse 19 Scripture tells us that Egypt will in fact be a desolation and that other part that turns against Jerusalem, Edom, will be a desolate wilderness. Why? For the violence that they did to the children of Judah because they shed innocent blood in their land. We know from the book of Genesis chapter 12 that God blesses those nations that bless Israel, bless the children of Israel, and curses those who damn our people, because in reality, when they curse Israel, they're cursing the God of Israel. So it's really quite illogical for someone to say, I'm going to put my hope with Rome. Hard to imagine how someone today would would stand up and raise his fist against the God of Israel. After all, we've seen mighty miracles here in the Holy Land. So those are two parts of the nations of the world that have turned their back on the God of Israel and God who hardened their heart as he's done Pharaoh, and they'll rise up to destroy Jerusalem. 
And the Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 12 that God will take even the weakest Jew. Verse 8 and 9, he will strengthen him like David, even like the angels of the Lord of hosts. But there's this third part, this other section of the Gentile world who will choose the God of Israel above every other God, above every other Lord, above every other host. And then God is going to refine them like gold. That's you, the righteous Gentile who chose the God of Israel. We're living, as I mentioned earlier, in an extraordinary time. While we can't be certain of the time of the end, it's not just it's difficult to calculate it, but the Bible warns us, as I mentioned earlier, that we are forbidden to engage in calculations. It's hard not to notice the raving lunatic east of where I am right now, Ahmadinejad, who each and every day curses the children of Israel and threatens to destroy us. Makes no sense. Ahmadinejad is threatened by the United States. He's making the Europeans very nervous. And even the Sunni Muslims who are around him are very concerned. After all, the Persian Gulf states are rich with with oil reserves, and they don't want to see threatened by a Shiite lunatic. Yet he is partnered with Syria, a Sunni Arab country. They have a military pact, and they're threatening to destroy the, the state of Israel. And they are coddled by so many in Endom. Bible tells us at the end of days there's going to be milchemes gogumagog, that is, the nations of the world who are not faithful are going to rise up against the Jewish people. Gagumagog, as you may be aware, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value, and Gagumagog is equal to 70, which means the 70 nations of the world. And they're going to rise up against the children of Israel. They're going to put their hopes in Shahab three missiles. They're going to put their allegiance to oil and a roof, physical things of this world. In fact, the word Gog in Hebrew is a simple word. It means a roof. The people who trust in a physical roof to protect them, they are the ones who are going to rise up against the children of Israel. Those who believe in things of this world, such as the chariots and the horses, those are the people who are going to seek to destroy the apple of God's eye. And Gentiles around the world have to make a vital decision. Are they going to join with those who are the people of the roof, the people who trust in the concrete and steel reinforced beams above their home, who trust in the oil and the missiles and the tanks? Or are they going to be the ones who don't trust in the roof, but trust in the clouds of heaven? It's very interesting that the festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles, is a holiday that follows Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It comes almost immediately after that holiest day on the Jewish calendar. It's as if Jewish people around the world fast and pray to God and plead for forgiveness, but they do that in the synagogue. Immediately following that great and awesome day, they leave their home with their strong, reinforced roofs, and they go into this little booth. It's a sukkah. And the essence of this booth is not really the walls. They've don't figure very large into the equation of the booth. The essence of that sukkah is that roof. Now, when you're inside a booth, you look at the roof, what is it made out of? A bunch of leaves, perhaps some bamboo shoots. In fact, according to the law of how to make a sukkah, its roof in particular, you're not allowed to have anything connected to the ground overhang the sukkah. All the organic material that's thrown on the roof has to be pieces of wood or leaves or branches that are completely disconnected from the ground. 
The sukkah, after all, is a reminder of the clouds of glory, the Anani HaKavod, those clouds that protected the nation as they journeyed for 40 years in a wilderness coming to the land of Israel. There's no logical way that millions of people could travel through a wilderness for four decades and survive, but they did. They survived through miraculous means. There was no water in that desert to be found. And how would so many people drink? It emerged from a rock. Food fell out of heaven. And the elements and in the desert would have destroyed the most sturdy hiker and the probably uh, the most well-trained Boy Scout. But there were those clouds, the clouds that hovered over the nation that miraculous protection that guarded the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the grandchildren of our forefathers from the elements that ordinarily would have destroyed any other nation. A nation so precarious that when the Almighty appeared to Moses, uh, he saw a bush, a bush that was burning, and the fire would ordinarily consume the bush, but the bush somehow in the midst of that fire, would not be consumed. And that was a picture of the Jewish people of Israel, a nation that, logically speaking, should not be here, but through great miracles, only through God's protection and intervention, remains strong. And that's the schach, that's the sukkah, the schach, that unique, flimsy roof on top of a booth, the kind of roof that any wind could blow away, any turbulence in the weather could destroy or shatter. That's where the Jews go after Yom Kippur. And what they're saying essentially is this. You remember, Lord, what I said to you, how I cried out to you on Yom Kippur? I fasted and waxed forth with prayers. I, I pounded my chest and cried out to you. I said, Lord, I trust in you. Please forgive me for all my sins. Well, those prayers and confession, and that was all done in a synagogue. It was all done in an air-conditioned, temperature-controlled building of brick and mortar. But, Lord, I want to show you that I trust you. I'm leaving my house. I'm walking out of my home, strong and well-built, with a powerful foundation, with a fortified ceiling, and I'm going into this little booth. This little booth can be blown over by just a, a little easterly wind, but I'm going to sit in this booth for seven days to demonstrate to you that every word that I cried out to you, every tear that I shed on Yom Kippur, every holy word that fell from my lips, I meant it was from my heart. I trust in you. I'm here in the booth. The only thing that can protect me is the schach, this flimsy roof that can't even be connected to the ground because that schach, that covering on the booth, represents your clouds of glory. So the nations of the world have a choice to make. They can either trust in the gog, in the roof, those people will come to destroy those who trust in the clouds of heaven. Two parts of the world who will come against the nation of Israel will seek to destroy Jerusalem, undermine the promise, the foundation, the Lord of Lords, host of hosts. They'll be destroyed and they'll be cut off. Their attack against the children of Israel really won't be a very logical move. After all, the Almighty has protected the state of Israel for so many years. But God will harden their heart the way he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. This is not my homily on the Bible. Read Ezekiel 38, and God says he will harden the hearts of the nations and force them to come up against the Jewish people in order to show his glory to the world. Now there's the, that third part of the Gentiles, not a third, but that third segment of the Gentile nations. I'm going to say this. Our hearts are not with the people of the roof. 
We're not with Edom. We're not with the church. We're not with Yishmael. We're not with the mosque. We too are going to put our hope in the God of Israel. How do we do that? We know who God's son is. It's that son described in Exodus 4.22. It's God's firstborn son. It's Israel. The Jewish people we recognize, not every Jew, not the Jews who are heading the ACLU or the UCLA or the or now or other the New York Times on their editorial board, but those children of Israel who stand by the God of Israel, this faithful, unique remnant of the Gentiles, what they're going to do, they're going to oppose the people of the roof. They're going to oppose the 70 nations. They're going to oppose Edom. They're going to oppose Ishmael. They're going to oppose those who seek to destroy the nation of Israel. They're going to oppose the members of the quartet that the United States foolishly engages with, the Russians who are feeding the Persians with nuclear material and the European Union who each and every day plots the destruction of the Jewish state and the United Nations building on the east side of Manhattan, that nations gather each and every day, trying to come up with a plan, a plot, to somehow destroy the people of Israel. Now, I, my Bible says in Isaiah chapter 8, Utsu eights of Vesufar, let them try to develop a plan. Let them try to come up with an Eitzah, some sort of way to destroy the Jews. It's going to come to naught. Dabru Davar, let the folks in the UN, let them gather in Geneva or in Norway, in Oslo, to try to develop a way to undermine God's people, Israel. Let them try to speak the talk. It will not be established. Now, why won't it be established? After all, the people of the roof, the folks who, who look to earthly manners to win their wars, why won't, why won't it succeed? The European Union is uh, far more powerful than the state of Israel. The United Nations has hundreds of representatives that seek to destroy the Jewish state. There are, after all, more than 20 Arab countries and more than 50 Islamic nations that seek and plead with their gods and prophets to destroy the nation of it. They're so powerful. I mean, the whole state of Israel is less than 30,000 square kilometers, less than 1% of the Middle East. They're just a tiny little place that can, a state of Israel that could be driven across in a matter of hours. And I'm talking north to south, forget about east to west, which is just a hike. How is it possible? Why is it that the plots and plans of the enemies, those Gentile nations that oppose the people of Israel. How is it that Edom and Yishmael, two powerful forces in the world, how is it that they'll fail? The end of the verse in Isaiah chapter 8 tells us, it says, Ki umanu kel, because God is with us. And that's why you, you might be a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Gentile who can easily assimilate into a a little town in Big Sandy, Texas, uh, can get lost in the panhandle of Florida, who could spend your life in Holland and no one would notice you and no one would hate you because, after all, you don't look Jewish. But you decided, you know those people in the Middle East, in that southwestern corner of Asia? I know that God has made a promise with them, and I know that if I connect to them, I'll be hated by the world. I might even have friends that I've grown up with, family members who might turn their back on me, but I've got this one family member who means more to me than anything, and that's my father, uppercase F, my father who's in heaven. He's blessed them, and he'll bless me if I, if I connect to them. And it's that third segment that has brought you here to this conference of Noahide nations, of Gentiles from across the world, who desire to connect not with the roof, but with the clouds of heaven. That's why in Zechariah chapter 14, Scripture tells us that those of who are of the righteous of the nations of the world, 
Each and every year, they're going to come to the land of Israel to celebrate a festival. Now, in the Messianic age, what festival would the righteous Gentiles celebrate? Well, ain't going to be celebrating Christmas and Easter. You can be sure of that. And Ramadan's not going to be on the schedule either. It's going to be a Jewish holiday called Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, the Festival of Tabernacles of all the holidays, that's the holidays that the God of Israel is going to call upon the righteous Gentiles who bless Israel to celebrate? It's because those righteous Gentiles are the ones who trust in the schach. They trust in the clouds. And that's what the sukkah represents. And that's why in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the Bible tells us, describing the Messiah, and in fact, the context of Daniel, chapter 7, for the most part, is describing Edom, the fourth of the four beasts. The Bible tells us, it's in Aramaic, quite beautiful, that the vision that was seen by the prophet, one who will come will be the Messiah, and he'll come on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean, he'll come on the clouds of heaven? What does clouds mean? You know now what that means. It doesn't mean the the water that's in a gas form that falls as rain. It means the clouds, those who trust in the clouds of glory. And he will come to those who are the faithful. And that's you, those who are willing to forego everything of this world for the God of Israel. Those of you who are willing to be hated by the United Nations. And I'll tell you this, if uh, tomorrow the UN comes out with a resolution supporting you, blessing you, if Jimmy Carter next week comes out and blesses you, check your theology. <laughs> because you don't want the praise of the nations of the world. You want the praise of the God of heaven. That's where you are right now. You've made that decision. You've made the decision to perhaps endure great suffering. I don't wish that upon you, but prepare yourself. Prepare yourself to be refined like gold. That's not my words. That's Zechariah 13. Prepare yourself to endure whatever is necessary to bring about the final redemption. You know, with the Passover Seder, each and every year, the Jewish people gather, as we are told in the Bible, and we celebrate. There's a unique tradition, custom, to have four glasses of wine at the Passover Seder. Each of those glasses of wine represent the redemption, represent God saving us from these horrible kingdoms of the world. It's not just Passover that we celebrate. It's not just an event that occurred 3,320 years ago that we recall. But at that Passover Seder, the Jewish people gather around and remember a vital piece of information, that had God not redeemed us from Egypt, we ourselves would still be in bondage. And in fact, the Almighty himself interferes in history, stands up against those who oppose us to protect his people beneath his wing. And that's why we have the four glasses of wine that represent the four words of redemption found in the Torah. And these four unique redemptions are the four redemptions from the four beasts, the four kingdoms that sought at each stage in history to undermine the Jewish people, to destroy our nation, our commonwealth, to destroy the Torah, to destroy the temple, to destroy the connection of the Jewish people to the God of Israel. Now, although we drink those four glasses of wine, there is this fifth glass of wine that's poured as well. We don't drink it. It's reserved for Elijah the prophet, and that's messianic. The last, the end of the Bible, the end of Tanakh is the book of Malachi. And at the end of the book of Malachi, the Almighty tells us that Elijah the prophet will come before the great day of the Lord, and he will herald the redemption. That glass of wine is the fifth kingdom described in Daniel. It's a kingdom that will be forever and ever. It's a kingdom that cannot be destroyed because it is the kingdom 
of the Almighty. It's a kingdom that will last forever. It's a kingdom that all the nations who survive will bless. All the nations of the world will set aside their foolishness, their idolatry. Jeremiah 16, 19 and 20 tells us that in those days the Gentiles will come to the Jewish people. They're going to say, surely we've inherited lies and vanity where there is no truth. How can a man make unto himself gods when they are not? At the end of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 60, it describes the final redemption, how arise and shine for your light has come. The sons of them that afflicted you will come and come bow to the soles of your feet. It doesn't mean that they'll worship Jews, God forbid. It means that they'll recognize that the people of Israel are God's true representatives on earth. And in order for the Gentile nations to understand how to worship God the Almighty, they have to look to the faithful remnant of the Jewish people, and that's the people of Israel, those who cleave to his Torah and have a personal relationship with God. And you could see it all before you today. The Jewish people, maybe 14 million worldwide, only a remnant of them are faithful to the Word of God. Only a, a small number, a couple of million, have a personal relationship with God and keep the Shabbat, obedient to the mitzvot. And you, well, the Almighty has a plan for you. You know why? Because you have a plan for the Almighty. The Almighty has chosen you because you chose him above every other God. That, ha that couldn't be easy. In fact, I was uh, raised in a religious home. Uh, I didn't know anything about being a Gentile. I didn't understand anything about what it meant to have the, the sacraments and the wafers and all this stuff. It seemed bizarre to me. In fact, you know, I, I was in rabbinical college in my younger years. I, I didn't have a clue what it meant to be raised in the Christian world and, and to be able to say, you know what? There is one God. There isn't three in one person. Man isn't totally depraved, but man has free will, as described in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. In fact, God isn't a man. He's not immortal. Numbers 23, verse 19. It wasn't an easy decision to come to. But again, you chose the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And because you have, Hashem has chosen you. My blessing to you is that the Almighty should strengthen you. May he guard over you and watch you. There are very powerful voices and forces in the world today was seeking to destroy the Jewish people. Obviously, there's Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and we got a prime minister that isn't too sharp right now, so he may be negotiating with Syria. Don't worry. Uh, the God of Israel is watching over. He is our true prime minister, and it is him alone that we worship. Hamas is preparing for war, and Hezbollah is in the north, and they've, they've got a larger arsenal than before the war they waged with Israel last summer. And apparently Condoleezza Rice's Resolution 1701 wasn't exactly successful in preventing Iran's client terror organization Hezbollah from rearming. Ceasefire here in the Middle East, in fact, means rearm. And that's what's occurred before our eyes today. There are forces in this world that are seeking to destroy the Jewish people spiritually secularism, the worship of money and beauty and, and folks like Paris Hilton in, in Hollywood. There are organizations that have gathered and are waging a spiritual war against the Jewish people, groups like Jews for Jesus, that seek to take the children of Israel and bring them to worship another God, to worship a Messiah who is not, to worship someone who is not the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. And we have to stand strong against those forces. My guess is that some of you listening to my voice, who are righteous Gentiles, came through the Christian world. And some of you, in your sort of growth, you started to see groups like messianic organizations. And they kind of had all these Jewish things going on, Hebrew liturgy that had been taught. And 
you might have been very attracted to it and said, wow, here's a, a Christian group, and but they got Jewish stuff in there, and my church doesn't have any Jewish things going on. And you probably said, you know what, let me, let me get involved with some, I don't know, messianic congregation. But if you watched real carefully, there's no theological difference between the messianic movement and an Assemblies of God church, except they borrow Jewish symbols and traditions in order to sway and convert the Jewish people to Christianity. It's a movement that has done great harm to the children of Israel but cannot succeed. You have done the remarkable. As a righteous Gentile, listen carefully. While it's still night, while it's still darkness, while we're still in our bitter exile, you chose the God of Israel above every other God. You know, as I mentioned to you in the beginning of this presentation, the Almighty has brought so many Jews from around the world, around half the world's Jewish population is here in the land of Israel. Nineteen years after the War of Independence, he would give us Jerusalem. But there's this little part of Jerusalem, it's the roughly the size of 24 football fields. It's the Temple Mount. It's a place that Abraham, 4,000 years ago, was willing to bring his son Isaac as a sacrifice. That Temple Mount, it's not completely in our hands. The Wafq, Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, control much of the goings-on on that Temple Mount. And if you ain't a Muslim, you're not going to be allowed to pray on that sacred place. So the last part of the redemption hasn't yet occurred. The book of Ezekiel tells us in chapter 37, a very famous chapter, it's the Valley of Dry Bones, and obviously demonstrating that although the Jewish people at times seemed at the brink of destruction, that these bones could live. At the end of Ezekiel chapter 37, the Bible tells us very clearly that when will the Gentiles know that I am Lord? When will all the world know that the God of Israel is the only God and there is no other? when that temple, that sanctuary will be built there. So there is still an abomination and desolation that sits on that holiest place on earth. We pray each and every day. We say, Lord, may it be soon that your redemption would come. Would it be soon, Lord, that you would destroy the enemies of Zion and raise up your people Israel after all? Each and every day, your name is cursed and blasphemed. It's not for our sake. It's not that we we want Israel to win like Brazilians want their team to win in the World Cup. We seek, Hashem, that you would preserve Israel and and save this nation that you gave your promise to, not for our sake and not in our merit, but in the merit of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would it be, Lord, soon that every tongue will praise your name and every knee will bow before you, that every mouth will proclaim your prayers? Hashem, please, Lord, please use me. I'm talking about you and me as your vessel, not, not for my sake, but for your sake, that all the world will come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want to say this to you, just you and me talking here. We may be weeks or months away from this final redemption where the light will finally come and all the nations will know the truth. But you who are here at this Noahide conference here in Florida, you who have attended the World Conference of Noahide Nations, you really achieved the remarkable. You chose the God of Israel while it's still night. You didn't wait till the morning. You didn't wait till the sunrise. But while it's still night, the morning is soon coming. You've already pointed to heaven and said, You, Lord, the God of Israel, you're my God. You have given me seven commandments. It's really seven general categories of commandments that you want me to keep. Sins like immorality and theft, you've forbidden to me as a child of God, creating your image. Lord, although logically I, I really don't want to steal and I want to be honest in business and I 
want to lead a moral life, I want to do this for you. I want to live a moral life and not take another life, not take another one's property. I want to walk in this faithful path that you laid out for us. I want to taste not of a limb of a living animal because you've prohibited it in the book of Genesis, not because it's logical to my mind, not because it makes sense. You know why, Lord? Because I love you. Because you alone are my Savior. So my brethren from around the world who chose the God of my forefathers, Hashem has chosen you and has blessed you because you chose the clouds of heaven above the roof. May the Almighty continue to strengthen you. Be not afraid of the enemy because our God is more powerful than any other Lord and other, any other Savior. And if you bow before the God of Israel, you fear no one. I am grateful that the Almighty has brought me to the land of Israel. I am sorry that I wasn't able to make this presentation in Florida because I'm in the land of my forefathers looking at the Temple Mount. My deepest gratitude to Noahide nations and a personal blessing to Ray Patterson and all of those who work in this sacred path with this remarkable man for making so much so possible for so many. Our organization's website address is outreachjudaism.org. If you have any questions about the Bible, you can contact me through that website. On behalf of all the folks at Noahide Nations and Outreach Judaism, and on behalf of all our listeners at Israel National Radio, I want to thank you for listening to this presentation. And may the Almighty continue to strengthen you, raise you up, and together we will rejoice in Jerusalem. Thank you. This is my love song for you, I said.